0: From dictatorship to dictatorship. In 1989, when the Soviet Union collapsed, the people there were hopeful for democracy. Didn't quite work that way. We missed an opportunity. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through.
1: I speak tonight for the
0: dignity of man. What kind of country does this sort of stuff? This unbelievable horror in Ukraine we see day after day. The execution-style murders in Bukha. Yes, Russia is doing terrible things. But the Russian people are not to blame. Blacked out of news, making the best of it since the collapse of the predictable Soviet Union, which at least had a social safety net in place, what's slowly become of Russia since 1991 has been a disaster, not just for the Russians, but for the entire world. With the fall of what called itself communism, the vacuum of any sort of order has led to not just economic anarchy and egregious corruption, but also the murderous tyranny seen on the TV screens throughout the horrified world. It is, of course, imperative that the world today do all it can to stop this river of blood. It's worth asking, however, how did Russia get where it is today? When the Soviet order fell, there was nothing to fall back on. Instead of our hands-off approach in the West, could we have done something? Was the worldwide rise of authoritarian right that we see today preventable? Our returning guest today, Professor Robert Toplin, uses the tool of history to argue that our choice to ignore developments of post-Soviet Russia were what he recognizes as a lost opportunity to set post-Soviet Russia on a stable course. Robert Brent Toplin, professor emeritus at University of North Carolina, Wilmington, taught courses at the University of Virginia after retirement from full-time teaching. Thank you for doing that. He has published several books about history, politics, and film, and has a website, presentandpast.com. Well, thanks for being back with us, uh, Professor Toplin. Thank you. No doubt, when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1989-91, as you say, quote, many Russians hoped their society would quickly transform into a democratic and prosperous country. Well, we didn't pay much attention after the great drama and excitement of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Now it's 30 years distant. Paint a picture for us. What happened? What was it like for the Russian people at the time?
2: I would say that one notable moment in their expression of hopes and excitement for a better future Occurred on January 31st, 1990. <laughs> that was the day that the first McDonald's opened in Moscow, and the crowds were so excited about this new opportunity to be part of the West and to um, they hoped that to be capitalism and enterprise and growth in the country. And McDonald's was an example of the wonderful modern productivity you could get out of the West. And they, by the hundreds, they were there. There were numerous applications for jobs at McDonald's after this. Everybody wanted a shot at it. And uh, however, there was uh, one customer reported in the Washington Post around this time who said uh, it will go downhill, this this business called McDonald's in, in Moscow. He said, we don't know how to run a restaurant like this. Yeah. And in a sense, this is pressing about the larger society where they know how to run a capitalist, free enterprise society in the broad sense. And the answer, it seemed to be that they were not well prepared at all for this. And if you look at what happened in the 1990s, just briefly, sure. by the end of the 90s, those folks were terribly disappointed. The economy had cratered uh, about one third of per capita income had disappeared in the society. They were in a deep depression through much of this time, even greater. Than the American experience of the Great Depression in wow. the 1930s, huh. and by some counts, certainly. And the corruption was vast. Uh, inflation was wildly out of control. And in some ways, it, you know, the situation resembled Germany in the 1920s when everything went downhill and people were faking piles of cash in to yeah. get a loaf of bread, a, a terrible thing. It led to great disillusionment, and, of course, by the end of the decade, many Russians were ready for a strong man Uh to please come along and establish order and progress in some way. And we all know where that story ended up Mm -hmm. today, Mm -hmm. uh, in the grip of this powerful autocrat who's a menace to his own people and, of course, to the world.
0: Yeah, and, uh, you know, thinking with history, it'd be nice if we could do that and learn from history every now and then. We have seen... Terrible results when a country that sees itself as a great power is suddenly humiliated. It's not a pretty sight. I think of the Versailles Treaty, which shocked and deeply humiliated Germany, which that humiliation pretty much guaranteed a Hitler the need or the, the perceived need for a strongman. So the wall fell, the Soviet Union collapsed, and the rest of the world seemed to walk away from the mess. Is that sense of humiliation? Do we see evidence of that in Putin's war on Ukraine? Did that sort of develop out of that uh, awful humiliation?
2: He plays on that idea, of course, very Uh strongly. Uh Uh, I think it's quite it's emphasized for his own purposes. He often talks about NATO as humiliating. Uh, the Russian people, and that uh, NATO crept up right to the borders and and all of this. Hitler used the argument about the Versailles Treaty. Both issues are relevant in some ways, but Hitler, of course, was involved in much more uh, aggression than related to the Versailles Treaty. In time, you got to see that he had uh, great ambitions to uh, dominate vast areas of Europe and perhaps beyond Europe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in this case, we see Putin, who keeps uh, grabbing territory and threatening and it seems like the complaints about NATO or the humiliation and all that is being played in many ways for politics for uh, to build up anger and resentments the resentments were there it's true in the 1990s there was concern about these things the humiliation the, the defeat of the communist system and you know the embarrassment to the world but uh, I think many Russians if they have been given a strong opportunity to grow and to have some order of democracy and stability in their politics, they could have been on board with closer ties with the West. And uh, as I mentioned later, maybe uh, Putin himself talked about warm relationships with the West and with the United States, European neighbors, all that at the beginning, he sounded like a good guy, but he changed in time. And perhaps he was joking all along in a nasty way.
0: Yeah, his word. I I don't know. And it's just curious to me how uh, this opportunity that that the West had uh, could be just uh, blown like it was. And, you know, during this first decade of a post-Soviet Russia emerging, I, I, I got the impression, and I read this somewhere, that it was like doing a high wire act without a net. You write that When there was really, previously, there was really no private property, and there was no carefully designed plan in place to ease the shift to a market economy. And economist Lawrence Summers, mixed record at best, called for a quick privatization of what had been state-run, sort of jumping in there and taking advantage of it, somehow believing that what he called shock therapy would work. What were the... What is this shock therapy, and and what were the actual effects of swift privatization on the Russian economy and the Russian people?
2: Sure, Summers is involved in this as well as some of his Harvard colleagues, and uh, many people really wanted shock therapy. Not everybody, of course, but uh, the idea sounded pretty good because it had been tried in various ways in other societies. Uh, it goes back to some popular ideas about. Ideas that have a validity in many respects, too, but when you go to extremes, and especially when you go to the extreme in a society like Soviet Union, now Russia, uh, you're looking for trouble. Uh, so the talk was about free markets, and you have people uh, who would talk about liberalization, the Washington Consensus, Uh, And the whole ideas that were we're promoted by some of the philosophers and economists such as Friedrich Hayek in a book called Road to Serfdom long ago, 1940s, Milton Friedman's writings, all of this. But the notion was that if you free up a market, uh, a a society that is uh, behind the times, that has had corruption and the dictatorship and all this and let the markets prevail at the beginning, this will break down all the old-time traditions and problems very quickly, and you'll be on your way to progress. So they tried it in Chile. The Chicago boys went to Chile, and and they tried to make things change there. Well, it was a vicious dictatorship for a while under Pinochet, but nevertheless, the economy of Chile began to get uh, some traction and really began to grow. And more recently then, uh, as the uh, Polish people found their freedom from the Soviet grip, uh, they too got to try some shock therapy and some recommendations about it. And it worked, but Poland was not Russia. It was a smaller country, mm-hmm. had more uh, homogenous feeling about support and working together and all this, and a little more freedom in terms of enterprise during those years, even though they were under the pressure of the, uh, the Soviet Union. Well, here come uh, people such as Lawrence Summers and one of his top aides from Harvard, David Lipton, Another guy at Harvard who had Russian background, Andre Sleifer, And their whole idea is that uh, shock therapy's gonna work. We have to do this quickly. Let's change the economy swiftly. Uh, we'll get to the institutions, democracy, all that later. They'll, they'll develop more naturally if you move toward the free choices of a vibrant society quickly. And then they had a few guys in Russia, right over there in the regime of Putin, I'm sorry, <laughs> Yeltsin, Yeltsin, before yeah. we get to Putin. Yeah. Yes, Boris Yeltsin, and this was in the 1990s, and one was Anatoly Jubias and another guy named Igor Haidar. Uh, but the whole idea was that you could quickly change mm. this thing and it will go just great. Mm. Unfortunately, you're you're opening the society to the, the predators, <laughs> <Next>. <laughs> investors who have a, a political connection, a good ties with Yeltsin and others. And so they can grab factories that have been running under the communist system, huge or enterprises, and take charge and make a fortune that way. Uh, some of the biggest pickings, of course, would be in the field of natural resources, oil and gas supply, and there would be opportunities there too. So this leads to a lot of trouble, and of course it leads to oligarchs and some who are making a fortune at yes. the very time, the 1990s, when so many Russians begin to suffer from the inflation and the economic decline. And they're, they're really, they're getting hungry and desperate and yet they look and see that some folks are making a fortune out of these changes.
0: One has to wonder if Summers, how, I mean, he's no dummy and his his people too. Could they have not foreseen that, you know, when you, when you take away, uh, the the any kind of social safety net, and you just have shock therapy. then of course, of course, the predators are going to go in, and grab everything up. I, I I can't help but think that perhaps he knew that at the time. I, I, how it couldn't have been a surprise. Yeah, you know, it, it, I I just wonder if they might have seen that. You know, and at least in theory, under communism. And was that really mm-hmm. communism? I. I have a hard time. I mean, I don't think Marx would have ever been comfortable with, with Stalinism. and you know, it, it, Anyway, it was some kind of sure. state fascism, basically. Under communism, in theory, everyone's basic needs are met. There is no rich or poor. So it's hard to imagine how the Russian people could comfortably and easily expect to go from, from that to the phenomenon of oligarchs in the context of expectations in the Soviet Union. It's the very antithesis of the equality that had been promised. Do, do, where is it? Did they, the Russian people in the 90s, did they start to see the oligarchs spring up? And do they know now? I mean, I, I wonder, even in the United States, I mean, we're sort of like, yeah, oligarchs are okay. They're kind of fun. We trust them. We had one as president for too long a time. But do the Russian people who, who got used to having basic needs taken care of did they what's their awareness now do you know of of the hyper rich oligarchs versus everybody else
2: it's interesting question and the the (laughs) oligarchs of today are different from the oligarchs we had in the 90s in a way Uh, some of the ones who were there in the 90s uh, had the connections with yeltsin and they they grabbed control of the industries and what often some of them would just uh you know they'd uh Get to work on the the businesses, and they'd sell off products, and and uh, eventually fire the workers, and sell whatever they could, and make some money, and take a run. Uh, but the uh, some of them were okay. Uh, there were people such as um, K- Kodor, i trying to remember the guy Mikhail uh, Kodorkovsky who was a very successful business person, became an oligarch in this period. But he was already in the period of Glasnost under Gorbachev, uh, doing quite well in all kinds of enterprises, and eventually became uh, the head guy of Yukos, the big oil company in Russia. Uh, So he was an oligarch, but he was a very talented uh, guy and wanted to speak out about the political situation and thought about the care of the people too. Oh. Uh, of course, you know what happened to him? <laughs> he, he got uh, arrested in 2003 on phony charges and <clears throat> he was in prison until 2013, eventually escaped to various places, London and hmm. other spots and uh, has spoken out for a long time about the, you know, free to free press, free elections to have an open Russia as he called it. And there's another one hmm. uh, who, uh, uh, Alexei Navalny, of course, ah. who still another guy in prison who wasn't an oligarch, but a journalist and uh, a strong spokesperson, a champion for democracy. So some of them were okay. But I, I think that what's interesting here is that Gorbachev, yeah. that leader who worked closely with President Reagan in the 1980s, in a sense, solved the problem that was coming. He recognized we need change. He pushed the idea of glasnost, opening up the society for people to speak their minds. He pushed the idea of perestroika to reorganize the whole industrial and, and business uh, arrangement and, and make it more modern and all that. Uh, and in some ways, um, in a sense, you could look to China and say there were people like Deng Xiaoping who wanted to get away from the terrible Maoist. Mm-hmm. dictatorship and after mao was sort of passing from the same this guy pushed. he said free enterprise he called it socialism with uh, chinese characteristics this interesting little idea he wasn't open to complete democracy and of course and square is yeah. remembered as a terrible tragedy but the idea was that you would gradually evolve toward a free enterprise system and still have a government that you know, control the situation that represents the past in some ways, and it Mm. would be modernizing the whole society. And Gorbachev perhaps was thinking along these lines, but of course he lost out pretty quickly to the oligarchs today are just one last point is that uh, they are really under the thumb of Putin. Putin has placed them there. Putin has benefited them greatly. They are wealthy and successful. They have yachts thanks to Putin. And when we often write about this and talk of, you know, maybe these oligarchs will rebel against Putin, it doesn't seem likely. No. <laughs> uh, they owe so much to him, and they can't get away. Maybe somebody else, but not the oligarchs.
0: Yeah, money uh, changes everything. And when you, when you get them, that's for sure. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking about a missed opportunity when the Soviet Union fell and got that shock therapy, and uh, it didn't go well. It has not gone well. Our guest today uh, has written an article in uh, History News Network and elsewhere called The Lost Opportunity to Set Post-Soviet Russia on a Stable Course. Our guest is uh, Professor Emeritus Robert Toplin. And so prior to this shock of just everything falling apart and just uh, anarchy uh, being the rule, no rules being the rule, I guess, it was a command economy for 70 years what what did life look like we know that people didn't have you know freedom of the press and freedom of religion things like that but in terms of their economy and being able to live and have housing and food and education what did life look like in the old soviet union prior to the fall of uh, the soviet union
2: a wonderful book about this published in the 1970s was which- from somebody I got to meet, uh, Hedrick Smith. Oh, yes. Uh, He was a wonderful journalist uh, in television, PBS television for many years. He wrote a book called The Russians, and he he kind of shocked a lot of people in the 1970s because we were so fearful of the Russians, and oh my goodness, they maybe were ahead of us, we thought, in the 1950s, they put up Sputnik, and uh, they had a man in space, the first one, the first dog in space, all that. It looked like they were ahead of us and we had to catch up. Uh, But he was showing that the society was uh, repressive. uh, You couldn't speak your mind. Ideas didn't flow freely. People were fearful. And he also showed that the economy was a wreck. It was just uh, Mm. the old joke was something about uh, we pretend to work, said a worker, (laughs) and they pretend to pay us. We don't get anything (laughs) much at all anyway for all we're doing. It's not an incentive system where if you do great work, you're going to be rewarded. And uh, you have this whole system of uh, where they're not prepared for a modern economy. Mm. Uh, When you have a system like this and you suddenly erase it, uh, they don't have any good program for tax collection. They lack uh, bankruptcy laws. They lack uh, a tradition of honest and effective and efficient banking, Uh, the rule of law. Private property is limited. There have been some in time after the collectivization of agriculture over the years. They let little farmers and the like uh, do some of their own work. Some of the housing was in the private hands, but, but basically the society owned the big stories about the economy. So this is a society that had, as Hedrick Smith showed, uh, people are suffering. It's hard life. There's A lot of crime There's corruption. Mm. And in times, by the time you get to the 1990s and it's all everything, the state disappears. And folks are looking around saying, where is our medical care? Uh, life expectancy in Russia mm. is declining in a time we expect it to be growing and increasing. So we think of the 1970s and our malaise. Oh, my God, we had inflation. We had uh, an economy in the dumps for a while and people were in debt and all that. But you talk about malaise, that word Hmm. applied applied to Russia in the 90s. Terrible. In fact, inflation, uh, you you read different numbers. Uh, It depends on the period because there were ups and downs during the 90s. But it got up 200 percent. It got up to, uh, according to some reports, 2,000 percentage points. Um, we're worried about our nearly 8% inflation today in the United States. Consider what life must have been like for the Russian people.
0: Interesting, especially when they had the expectations of you know what they were told that things would be taken care of. And I had heard a story uh, about, uh, that sort of uh, symbolizes the way things worked or didn't work, was that there was one state-run factory that made bras. They were not well-made. Nobody bought them, and yet they insisted (laughs) on making more. There was. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that just. Supply and demand is not part of the picture. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And uh, I wonder have there been. I mean, Russia and the old Soviet Union have gone. uh, There's been a lot of changes over the last couple hundred years there uh, from the Tsarist uh, government. Have there been long periods or decent periods of stability in Russia. I mean, I guess the 70 years of, of uh, you know, the uh, Soviet Union was sort of stability, but, w- but what about, you know, more economic stability or have they always been sort of, you know, edgy thinking we should be, you know, a world power here and uh, just not, not okay with, with where they were, just wanting big changes. I, I don't know, have there been periods of stability?
2: When the economy is moving along and people are finding some money to spend, of course, they fear, oh, well, we've got stability and progress and things are looking good. It's amusing that if you look at this vast period of history of, for the Soviet Union, all the way back to Tsarist Russia, into modern times. Really, it's the early days when President Putin took charge. And one of the good bits of news that came in is that the, uh, the price of oil just surged in the early 2000s and suddenly the revenues were coming in and he could look pretty good and Putin began to uh institute various reforms and it looked pretty good at the beginning oh well they're going to collect taxes they weren't doing it in the 90s but under Putin suddenly they are collecting taxes Uh, they are uh, establishing bankruptcy rules and all this and he's imposing some order on the society and it just seemed like, well, we're, we're finally making progress. When he had a, an election around 2004, it was pretty popular and and, and won substantially. And uh, it looked like you know, the folks were happy with this guy. And he was at this time talking about friendly relations with mm-hmm. the West, with mm-hmm. the United States. Oh, Europe, we're all neighbors, we're friends, we're buddies, and, and we can work together in peace. And you didn't see the man that you're observing today in those years but later on he put uh, uh, one of his uh, friends in charge as the leader of for four years of russia and then he tried to come back as president again there were riots in the streets people demonstrating protesting and all that but you can understand what happened to those people who came out and expressed their true feelings mm. about this next election in 2012 uh so that's the beginning of a very different leadership under Vladimir
0: Putin. So Putin talked a good game there. It, and, you know, we need to talk about wh- what the West opportunities they missed. But at the time, was it just, was he uh, not being fully forthcoming with saying he wanted to be friends with the West? Or or did something change in him? Because it, it seems like, yeah, that would be good. It would be obviously beneficial to... To, to Russia to do that. What what happened?
2: In a way, this is the problem of autocracy. We often talk about democracy and autocracy, which is a better system. And a lot of people say, oh, you know, autocracy looks pretty good. Look at Xi and China. You've got everything moving and all that. I could
1: yeah, talk about run that. On time.
2: <laughs> yeah, the trains can run on time and all that. Yes. But uh, this is a problem that we begin to see with Putin in that he uh, he's not— generated and gener- he's not motivated he's not driven by uh, just economic success and uh, popularity in the broad sense he has strange ideas about humiliation uh-huh. and about the great russian empire one of the most tragic catastrophes of the 20th century he said was the you know the fall of the Soviet Union. Many people around the world say that that was a great moment. What are you talking about, Mr. Putin? To him, it's a tragic thing, and he has some strange ideas. But when I say that autocracy is a problem, uh, I think and to get to the heart of your question is that we realize now that this debate about autocracy and democracy is not just about uh, you know freedom of thought and expression and assembly and press and all that sort of thing and, and all the rest free enterprise. But autocracy could be a danger in that when one person like this guy has so much power and, and it's a grandest I minute, mean, it happens slowly and, with him, it occurred over 22 years. You, you, It's almost like you know the frog in the <laughs> in the hot water. It doesn't react at first because it doesn't know it's getting boiled. Uh, this is what happened to the people. And suddenly they turn around. And this is a, an idea that's, uh, expressed greatly in the book called How Democracies Die, a popular book in, in the last few years. But it's the idea that the people, the new dictator of the modern era looks like uh, proponent of democracy, oh, I'm for elections and so on. But once they get into power step by step, they expand their grip and their control over the society, and eventually you turn around and discover you can't speak out. And especially uh, this year with the war going on, yeah. uh, Putin has crushed dissent and everything else. So that's the danger we have here. Now, has he, We never. Everybody's looking at this strange man and trying to figure out what makes him tick? And uh, there's so many ideas about it. But above all, we, we understand that he he wasn't completely predictable. We know that he had from the beginning. We were a little suspicious. He had a KGB mm-hmm. background and all that. And he had, as he talked in his own autobiography, his own biography, I guess, talking to a a journalist or somebody or maybe one of his mm-hmm. buddies, whatever it was. But he he admitted that back in uh, Saint Petersburg in the streets. As a kid, he was, uh, you know, in fights, and, and realized you don't beat up the other folks; you know, they'll beat you. And uh, life is this, you know, jungle, and you've got to be the toughest animal wow. in the jungle. So that's uh, we, we've discovered things about him, but a lot of it wasn't really fully discovered for a long time. And and one last thing, I, I'm sure. sorry to
1: babble
2: uh-huh. on here, but right. it's just fascinating, uh, Bert, that uh, you know that American presidents tried so long to get along with this leader and to nurture him and you know, support him and so on. You think back, or with the Russians generally, just the whole picture, we often say, are we to blame? And in some ways, in this respect, uh, we were not to blame. And that is, you think back about George H.W. Bush as president and when the Soviet Union was collapsing and the wall came down, all this, uh, he said, we're not gonna gloat, we're not gonna make them feel bad, we'll try to be nice. And then after that, we have Clinton and he was trying to meet many times with Boris Boris Yeltsin to try to be a pal, a buddy. That didn't work. Along came George W. Bush. He said, I, I just met with Putin. I looked into his eyes. I saw his soul. <laughs> He's a good guy. We can work with him. We can trust him and so on. And then uh, later came Obama. And he said, we're going to have a reset now. We're going to start all over again in good terms. We're going to make uh, make some friendships possible. So the hope was among many of our presidents dealing with this guy that we could get along. But by 2014, with the uh, grab of Crimea, right. Crimea, and also with the uh, incursions into uh, in a secret way with uh, Eastern Ukraine. Right. All that you could see this. This is leading to trouble. But it was hard to take a stand at that point. Much easier to take a stand now in terms of the blatant uh, aggression in Ukraine.
0: Boy, it is. Yeah, and, and I have to wonder too. I mean, going back in history quite a bit, people have speculated that maybe, maybe one of the things that this guy Putin wants is a. Uh, you know, I maybe mean, he's nostalgic for the days of the czar. That was certainly an autocracy. The people were suffering, had no rights. They were literally starving. Uh, and, you know, the, 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 uh, the royal uh, friends, the, the aristocracy, they lived pretty well. And they were, I, I'm sure they thought of themselves as being a great power. I, what about uh, that line of thinking? Did, did uh, he kind of longs for the days of the czars?
2: That's interesting. It could be something like that, perhaps, that he likes to be the big man, the big czar, in a sense. Uh, But also, uh, there's tremendous economic wealth that goes with his position. We can only guess, we don't know for sure how many yachts he owns, how many giant, gigantic homes he owns and so much more, and how much he's got stashed away in rubles or dollars or whatever it may be. Uh, There's a lot of uh, power and and influence and cash that will go with this position as head of this regime. Uh, In addition to that, uh, his fear, he's a fearful man. He's worried about the crowd. That's one of the reasons why I think he worries about Ukraine. If Ukraine next door would have a democratic society, Uh, it would be an influence to the people in Russia. They could say, oh, Mm -hmm. well, those folks, boy, back in the, uh, they had an Orange Revolution, early 2000s, and the people came out in the streets. Eventually, they chased out the the president who was a a buddy of Putin and and got their own guys in charge. And uh, I know that uh, we've seen stories about this, about Putin's fear of the crowds. He, He knows what happened with the Arab Spring and how many times the crowds came out in the streets and suddenly the leader of Egypt was gone and other countries. And he knows about especially Libya and Gaddafi. And apparently he's watched the video many times Mm. how the crowd ripped to pieces Gaddafi, uh, bloody finish for that dictator. And so he worries that if he loosens up or if he doesn't act like a dangerous tough Uh guy and live on fear of the people and fear of his own top aides and some of the military guys, uh, he, he too could be in
0: trouble. Well, there's reason uh, to, to fear that, that they, they would. We, you know, we've seen it in the past when, uh, if, if they uh, let down their guard, and we've also seen that fear is a powerful a motivator in so many ways and you know it's come into all these different wars and things and you know Austria-Hungary was afraid that if Serbia became free in 1914 oh my god what would happen to the rest of their empire so this fear uh, and it fear once you're in that position of incredible power I guess there's a lot more to fear for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a lost opportunity to set post-Soviet Russia on a stable course. Our guest today is uh, Professor Emeritus Robert Brent Toplin. And, uh, you know, there's, I, I don't think there's any way to make an easy shift from autocracy to democracy. Though I sense the shift from autocracy to anarchy and rampant unchecked corruption, it could have been expected... Do we know about what actually happened when the system disintegrated? Did the Western powers know about it and just look away?
2: The Western powers were preoccupied in the 1990s. Uh, The Europeans were suddenly dealing with new countries freed finally from the Soviet grip uh, and the satellite nations and Poland and Romania and Hungary Czechoslovakia, which became the Czech Republic, and Slovakia, and all of this was going on. They weren't really in the mood to be thinking about uh, saving Russia in its hour of trouble. In the United States, we were uh, ourselves preoccupied with all kinds of issues and problems, national and international. You have George H.W. Bush, who presided over this uh, period when uh, the Soviet Union was collapsing and disappearing and, and eventually communism disappears by the end of 1991. Uh, he's got to think about this war in the Persian Gulf area against Saddam Hussein. And he's having a glorious moment of success and popularity after the victory. And then suddenly a recession comes along and yeah. he's in trouble. Along comes Bill Clinton and he has great hopes and uh, to, to be a world leader, too, as well as a national leader. but. Uh, he's got a big challenge from the Republican Party under uh, Newt Gingrich in yeah. 1994. They went hugely in the, con- in the Congress. Mm-hmm. The first time the Democrats are sent packing. And for, for since the FDR days, they yeah. the power brokers in, in Washington, D.C. Suddenly they're out of luck. Uh, so This is all challenging uh, Clinton, too, and he's uh, dealing with it. He's, he's handling the, the situation in Russia, but he, he's got so much more on his plate.
0: Yeah, he, he did. And uh, while well, Bill Clinton, as we were just discussing, was American president in the 90s, we've seen photographs of President Clinton and Boris Yeltsin palling around, joking and laughing. What, what was and There was a lot of pictures like that. What was Clinton's approach to the new world of post-Soviet Russia? How, how did he get along with Boris Yeltsin?
2: Yes, you're so right about the, the pictures we see of them together as buddies. Uh, 18 times they met in this period, almost more than all the times the leaders of the U.S. and Soviet Union met in those days of the Cold War. Uh, and Clinton tried to make this uh, a personal experience. He, he really believed that the, the best kind of diplomacy is when you get to know the individual leader of a nation and work closely with them and have a, a sense of trust between the two people. Uh, and he promoted some other ideas. He said, look, you—you you, maybe we can't get you in NATO exactly right away, but we'll call something uh, the Partnership for Peace. And it will be like a, mm-hmm. a sideline NATO. And, and, and Russia can be part of that. Maybe in time it will be NATO, in fact, and all this. And he had Strobe Talbot, uh, Talbot a uh, mm-hmm. Russian expert, by his side trying to amend any fences and and work carefully with the Russians he was very concerned Clinton and the whole Clinton administration with the nuclear weapons that now were in the hands of not just the Russians but uh some of them are there in Ukraine some are in Kazakhstan and and some are in Belarus and they had to work out all kinds of deals to uh, dismantle these weapons and that was on their minds and everything. It was the relationship Clinton had was going pretty well uh, it began to get tough and sour a bit uh, later 90s we have uh, the the Russians under Yeltsin and other people uh they're worried about uh, Chechnya and uh, they attack Chechnya it's sort of an autonomous area mm-hmm. but it's you know they're worried about it and they attack and that that brings some concern from the American leaders and then of course uh, later uh, around this time too you have the Serbians uh, attacking in Bosnia and the, the so, massacres uh, are occurring and yeah. uh, all this NATO uh, through the United States influence intervenes and try even bombs eventually after this Kosovo issue uh, bombs uh, Belgrade and that's, you know, the, there's a historic commitment to the people of Serbia that they think of themselves together as Slavs and all yeah. this, the Russians, the Serbians and so this led to tension with Russia, And that's part of the problem. And in the end, uh, Clinton has a, a real mess on his hands because Yeltsin is fading, he, he's disintegrating, he's getting drunk, he's had some heart attacks, he hardly seems to be able to lead anymore. And after all those efforts to build a wonderful, warm and close friendship with Yeltsin, uh, it's beginning to look late 90s that he's not going to be the future leader of this nation, hmm. something's going to happen.
0: Yeah, put it, well, what comes next? My goodness, nobody can predict that. And when Yeltsin dissolved parliament in 1993, as you note, the nation seemed to be on the brink of civil war. That's some pretty strong words. And as a student of history, reading that, I'm transported to the Russian Civil War 1917 to 22. When the Tsarist Empire fell in 1917, there was excitement and hope for a better life. But shortly after the sudden uh, dissolution of order Reality barged in and the communists divided amongst themselves between the Mensheviks and the brutal Bolsheviks. There was no order. A civil war did erupt between those who who sought a return to the familiar Tsarist order and the Bolsheviks. Are there some similarities to that? I mean, what what kind of civil war could there have been uh, af, after uh, Yeltsin dissolved parliament in
2: 93? Sure. Uh, it's, uh, you know... It, to, an example here is the American growth of democracy was slow and it took time. We had elements of it in the colonial period under the British and then it took a while to evolve in our own way. We had a lot of challenges over the, the history, but uh, this thing is coming suddenly. And you see at first exactly the example you gave. Of, you have a czarist regime and and then they are in World War One. And they keep fighting, and suddenly there's an overthrow of that regime. We all know that story. We've seen movies about the the czar and his wife and everything else. And uh, in a short time, uh, Kerensky, a seeming semi-democratic fellow, is in charge. But by by the time we reach October 1917, the Bolsheviks take advantage. And, And this is relevant to even today's situation, because what really brings down that or the regime of uh, Kerensky and his team is that they re- they retain Russia's involvement in World War One. They will not stop the war. They they continue. And now it's so unpopular this war that the the, the chance comes that the government's weak and it can be overthrown by the these Russians. And then there's a great fight between the anti-communists and the communists. And Mr. Trotsky, one of the Leon Trotsky, sort of organizes the armies pretty well, and they they end up crushing. Uh, this civil war. But in this case, you get another situation. Again, it's, it seems like the society is broken up. What was there before is gone. You have a vacuum. Who's to take charge? Okay. The constitution is not clear. It's an old constitution from the 1970s in a way. And you've got now in this new situation a dual government. You've got hmm. these parliamentarian people, people in the Congress uh, who have, represent all kinds of interests. Some are old-time communists. Some are people modernists democrats all kinds of people in there and then you have yeltsin and the presidency and the power of the central leader that's a part of russia's tradition mm. so something's got to give and uh in the end uh mr uh, yeltsin's trying to assert his authority and he dissolves the the parliament the, the congress and his move and then there's an effort to impeach him and it leads to a terrible fight uh, some of the people are out in the streets trying to uh, fight this central leader and, and to speak up for a different kind of government. Of course, they're mad as heck by this time because shock therapy has made their lives miserable, yeah. and they, they don't want any more of this kind of leadership. They figure if we stick with Mr. Yeltsin, we will have a continuation of the shock and the, ah. the chaos that follows it. So they they wanted to change things, but the, the army stuck by the President Yeltsin uh, bombed even, uh, fired the cannons into the parliament building. And oh, right. uh, it turned out to be the end of the, the civil war. It took some time, but that was the end of it. And they consolidated and he became a stronger president. He had worked up, now he's the victor. He puts out a new constitution that surprise of surprises, uh, the greater powers are there for the president of the country. <laughs> and so it's not just Putin, it's uh, even under Yeltsin, you have this kind of situation, but it's not completely surprising because there's so much tumult in the society yeah, yeah. that they're going to you know somebody's going to want to be the, the the master leader of the situation
0: yeah the the hero and the white horse come in and save them all boy that's a yes. a, a wish that people have had years and years and years, especially when things get in a mess and the, the successful Western economies they're they're neither unrestrained free for alls. Nor are they planned economies either. It seems to me that successful Western economies are mixed: the market where it works, safety nets where it doesn't completely. We have, you know, some degree of uh, uh, municipal services here, uh, police and firefighters, and uh, and housing a little bit. But in the case of post-war Russia, Joseph Stiglitz, another distinguished economist, had some suggestions rather different from Larry Summers' Harsh Shock Therapy. What did Stiglitz suggest? Might that have
2: worked? Yes. It it, it might have been much better than what they got. Uh, Stiglitz, a member of President Clinton's Council of Economic Advisors, later the chairman of that group, Nobel Prize winner later on. But he was an advisor on this too, among many. And he said uh, what they need is evolution. Evolution, not revolution. But first, you have to strengthen institutions in the country. What we need to do is support some of the young, democratically minded leaders, bright people who could uh, put them on the right track. And when you move in this direction, you can't have government just disbanded and dismantled. Uh, it has a place in society to protect the people, to provide a safety net, and to prevent uh, reckless capitalist behavior, the reckless kind, the, the destructive kind. So don't have a haphazard destruction of the whole order overnight, like right. shock therapy. Uh, and and especially in some of the biggest sectors of the economy that bring in the money, you want to make sure that cash is coming in for the people. Uh, it can be distributed for the good of the of people. So we need public control over gas and oil and that sort of thing. He was worried about uh, a rapid shock here that would lead to oligarchs grabbing control of so much of the economic wealth in the country and it was interesting that uh, along the way uh, some of these uh, free liberal liberal you know uh, economy enthusiasts would say to him hey, look you know look at u.s history we had barons too we had oligarchs in a way uh, in the 19th century late 19th century people mm-hmm. like the rockefellers uh, the carnegies the harrimans and Stiglitz's remark was, oh, yeah, sure, but at least they, they should sure, they got filthy rich, but they also made great contributions to the well-being, the economy of the nation. And uh, and these guys are just grabbing what's already there and slicing it up and giving it to each other. So that's not the
0: same thing. Indeed. Well, you know, certainly around the world, there's no secret that uh, the U.S. in particular has intervened. All over the place, usually with kind of bad results. We could not, certainly the Western powers could not have intervened directly after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, In your article, you note uh, economist Jeffrey Sachs uh, was pained by the failure of the West to do anything. I feel that it was tragic how we in the West, with our power and wealth, failed to contribute to more satisfactory change. We could barely find a penny in the United States to help, and he concluded that tremendous opportunities uh, had been lost. What, what could we have done? I understand the 90s, things were busy here, the focus of the president, et cetera, but, but what what could we have done without, I mean, we couldn't intervene directly. What, what were the opportunities that we could have had, do you think, that might have avoided this awful situation that we have now?
2: Sure. Uh, I suppose we could have remembered history again. I'm sorry, but I have to <laughs> bring in history each time as an example, a lesson for us in some respects. Uh, it can never be the same, as we often say. Uh, it's not really Mark Twain who said history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, but maybe he or whoever said it, it's a good idea. Uh, and there are lessons to be drawn from it. And you think of the way we got through the end of World War II You have some interesting examples there of trying to intervene. The United States was in a different position. We were the victors in the war. We could impose our will, as we did in many respects, in Western Germany, and we did it in Japan. And what we essentially tried to do was to uh, nurture them toward democracy, peaceful relations in the world, and prosperity. And it worked. It worked because we we really got involved in a big way. We gave great aid to Germany and Europe through the Marshall Plan, $13 billion, which translated into 2018 dollars, turns out to be $135 billion. Wow. Uh, big, a big influx of help. Of course, we wanted to, them to buy our products in return, all that, we had our purposes, but it, it worked marvelously, and Germany became... Uh, a, a decent country uh, by the 1950s. It was the new German miracle they talked about—the the growth of the economy—and they were peaceful, and they've been peaceful right up until our current times. And in Japan, we sent General MacArthur over, and we insisted on uh, a new constitution. All this. In each case, we we compromised. We didn't. We had some evolution. You don't just throw out the the baby with the bathwater. Uh, in in germany for example the the bureaucracy had been run by former nazi leaders and they you know, we don't we were embarrassed by this history as we learn about it now but our government allowed some of those former nazis to maintain positions of, of organizational uh, leadership in order to make sure that the whole thing would just would not fall apart and in japan we we compromised too we said Look, we'll We'll let your emperor remain because it mm-hmm. means a lot. It's he's the glue to your society, right. but he can't be the a, a, a godlike figure as he was seen before. And we also mm-hmm. we wanted to just one more example how sure. we compromise there. This is the idea that if we had done it with Russia, some compromises, some adjustment adjustment to tradition, but at the same time, you're trans transferring uh, the power in a in a way that can succeed and uh, in in um, Japan we wanted to just break up these conglomerates that were huge corporations and huge organizations and uh, the Japanese pushed back and they informally began to cooperate again together and we eventually said alright you know this works. They became the great corporations of today yes. Bishi, oh. Toyota and various others and they worked. It was part of their tradition their way of doing things uh, that's the idea that we, we could have done a lot. We, we couldn't intervene completely you wouldn't have the uh, the open door situation that you had after world war ii but they were looking to us for advice when you study the u.s relationship with russia in these years you discover that as you know Bert, the the uh the relationship was very close we were the advisors yeah they were looking to our people for you know what do we do now what's the economic approach to this? What's the political approach? What do we do? And and we were out there giving advice. The unfortunate thing is that we could have given better advice.
0: Uh, so they were interested. I was wondering about that. If they were asking for Western help, we can't just, you know, impose it from the outside. But perhaps they, they were asking for help and we just sort of missed it. Another source of, of, of uh, economic development, of course, is the International Monetary Fund. This kind of economic rescue mission is is largely what they do. There's a lot of question about their practices and the interests that they charge, but but what what did they do when when the Soviet Union fell? Anything?
2: Yeah, good point because the International Monetary Fund was the organization we turned to the Americans to to do the job in helping Russia. The administration we weren't we, the mood was not great to for us to give billions of dollars. We gave a little bit, but not much. So the, the International Monetary Fund was to make the, the change. And uh, it, it became uh, $22.7 billion altogether. But but uh, it was only $5 billion uh, until we get to an emergency situation in Russia in 1998, because that's when there was a financial crisis around the globe involving rising emerging nations. It started in Asia. It started in Thailand. It spread like wildfire, and it began to hit Russia. And it looked for a while like the country was going to uh, fall apart. It might not be able to pay its debts and everything. The IMF people didn't know what to do. One of the concerns they had was legitimate, of course, that uh, there's so much corruption in Russia. If you pour money into the Uh country, will you ever see it come back? Mm -hmm. Uh, Where will it go? (laughs) What's going to happen? So they they were holding back for a long time. And finally, uh, the Clinton administration intervened, went to the IMF, had emergency meetings, said, look, this, this is a crisis. This country's falling apart. But my point is just that uh, there wasn't a great deal of aid, uh, and it was held uh, back to some degree.
0: Certainly, the IMF tends to be rather prudent with their funding, uh, very careful about that. Well, sure. looking into the crystal ball for the future... There's a lot of hope around the world that the people of Ukraine will defeat Putin. And there's also these sanctions that are going on uh, against uh, Putin. Uh, And certainly the people of Russia are feeling the sanctions. I I don't think they know really about what the heck is going on in Ukraine. And I, I wonder if this might be a new opportunity if Putin is somehow defeated. But then again a uh, humiliated Putin is a scary prospect. Uh, and I wonder, will repression and censorship by the state protect him? Uh, could this, could this lead to uh, the fall of Putin, or is that just uh, wishful thinking?
2: That's another pertinent question, right to the heart of what we're dealing with. And we'd love to know what the outcome will be, and
0: yeah, we can't know.
2: No. Uh, but it's uh, the clash of two powerful forces here. One is the uh, the imposition of sanctions and the isolation of Russia, the pullout of Shell Oil and so many other groups that are just leaving, and uh, even McDonald's. All of this and the the pressure, the people, the the the, uh, the ruble has gone crashing down. Now it's getting pushed up again, and all oh, these troubles. Inflation is getting to be great in the long run if this continues, and it must continue, given the the seriousness of this crisis. Uh, they, the country may truly be in terrible shape. And it's possible that so many folks will be hurt and angered that no longer will they be fearful about coming out in the streets en masse. And it could be another situation somewhat like you had in Ukraine in uh, 2000s when when the folks appeared in the streets and overthrew their leader and sent him running off. Um, it's a possibility. And the other side is this tremendous uh, censorship Repression, yeah. police state, and all the authority it has over the people, including the media, where, as we've known, yeah. reading about this, that so many of the old people, especially, they depend on their news from television only, and what they're getting is a is a full, full throated propaganda about you know what a wonderful effort this is, and we have uh, only good purposes, and these evil Nazis in Ukraine are causing all the trouble. All this is going on. So there's a question, you know, which will give and who, if it is to be uh, a change in Russia, I, I think it, it may not be as many are guessing uh, the military. could be the military or some other group at the higher levels, but it could also be the appearance of frustrated, angry Russian people who can't take yes. it anymore.
0: We will see. It's always uh, interesting. And history always takes... Unexpected turns, and you have a great quote here. Vladimir Putin's ascendancy was not inevitable. Putin might have remained in obscurity if there had been a more uh, successful Russian transformation out of dictatorship and communism. We we could have done more, and uh, you know, it's just uh, Russia is an amazing uh, place in history. I've been reading a lot about it, and. uh, it's tough. It, I, they don't have a, a, a tradition of democracy at all. Right. Well, It th- hasn't been there. No, it hasn't been there. So it's going to be tough, and uh, there may be some new opportunities ahead. Uh, Professor Robert Brent Toplin, thanks so much for being with us today and, uh, and shedding some needed light on, on how uh, we got to this uh, awful Putin, uh, uh, terrible corruption and oligarchy situation in Russia, and that maybe, maybe, maybe we can learn from history. I don't know. Every now and then it happens. (laughs) Thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive.
2: Thank you. I appreciate
1: it the star, they put you there. You're all of us now, you're all over town, I'm rappers and dance, you're bigger than life, you're braver than death. You're a young man, holding your own. You're a young man, never alone. Young man, leader of tax. Shadow of death, killer in cheek, never betrayed, friend of our kids You're a gunman, holding alone, you're a gunman, never alone Gunman, gunman Sailor in arms, and kids on the street, Buying in shards. God, man, my son's is gone. He was there, you're all of us now. You're all over town You're black as you can You're bigger than life You're greater than death You're a gunman Holding your home You're a gunman You're never alone Gunman Gunman